Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes the most powerful forces in shaping the present and the future actually come from the past. That would ultimately become clear to Marianne Franks as a lawyer and as a scholar, but when she was young, it was plenty clear to her every Sunday as she sat in church. I think I was a really obnoxious child, and so one of the features of being obnoxious was wanting to push back on everything that I was being told. And I'd like to say that that's because I was uh, precocious or because I was particularly uh, unique in some way, but I think it had more to do with the fact that I didn't want to be at church and I was really bored most of the time, and so probably it was mischief as much as it was anything else. Marianne Franks grew up to become a law professor at the University of Miami, and in fact, she was fairly unique in a number of ways. One of them was that even though she understood the Bible to be shaping the world around her, it seemed perhaps to have some problems. I also just at an early age was very irritated with people who seemed absolutely sure that other people were wrong and bad, and that always troubled me. And so as a kid, I had not just read the Bible, I had read fairy tales, and I'd read Greek mythology, and I I was an avid, voracious reader, and I just wondered about the ways that the stories in the Bible were being interpreted. Nevertheless, Franks was saved when she was eight. You are sitting in the pews and you are listening to these sermons that are telling you how you're supposed to live your life, but more importantly, possibly for a kid, the consequences of not living your life that way. And they are, at least in the church that I went to, the consequences of eternal damnation. Not only are you a terrible person and not a Christian if you don't adhere to these principles, but you will suffer forever. And while all of your loved ones who have done the right Christian thing will be celebrating in heaven, you will be burning in flames forever. So Franks accepted Jesus in her Southern Baptist church in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. She accepted, but she had a few questions. The kind of questions that might be more characteristic of a graduate student in English than an eight-year-old, but still. And the morals or the principles that my church was taking away from those writings didn't always strike me as making a lot of sense. And so I think just on a kind of reader's level, I just thought, look, this these passages are obviously ambiguous in many ways, or this story is actually a horrible story about oppression and power and exploitation, and I don't know why anybody would hold that up as a good example for a community. So I was just questioning things pretty early on, not entirely sure what my motivation was maybe early on, but later certainly became very concerned about the fact that there weren't good answers to these questions and that the response in my church community to those questions was hostility. Franks remembers church being a refuge, even if she was bored sometimes. Her family was poor, her father had died when she was young, and in a town where most everyone was black or white, she was half Asian, brought up by her Taiwanese mother. Church offered a break from being teased or being singled out. It also offered, pretty importantly, a path to salvation. It's this very strong sense of both, we're going to welcome you because when you do the right thing, when you see things the way that we do, when we all come together and sing these songs and rise up at the end, and those of us who get to be saved or decide that we want salvation, there's this incredibly welcoming sense that you have done the right thing. And the flip side of that, of course, is if you don't, then you are on the outside, you were cast out, you were in the wilderness. But for a voracious reader, church offered something else, an absorbing book. Long before I started really pondering the Constitution in an intellectual way, I was very accustomed to the habits of 
taking a, a document very seriously, uh, very literally, and defending it against all other interpretations. And um, that was something that was done all the time in my church with the Bible, obviously, as the document there. And it's what I was reminded of as I became someone who then taught the law and researched the law and realized just how really attached people were to the Constitution in a way that reminded me so much of the passion that people had for the Bible and their absolute certainty about when they had read it correctly and their absolute conviction that other people were reading it wrongly and that those people were not just wrong, but they were out of the society, out of the community. And so those are some parallels that really occurred to me later on. Long after she left that church in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Marianne Franks became a Rhodes Scholar. She got a master's degree in literature at Oxford and then a doctorate, and then she ended up attending Harvard Law School, where she read that most central of American texts, the Constitution. And she noticed some parallels with the Bible, a text that had so powerfully shaped her life. I think that it was the benefit of having, first of all, that, that young sort of culturation, I guess, to the Bible, to very much a reading culture generally, and then something more like methodical study of these things, right? To think about who's the author here? What is the historical time period? What kind of social impact is this either intended to have or did it in fact have? And then thinking about the world sort of as text in that way, then going to the Constitution and thinking, well, there's a lot here that could be illuminated by those ideas, you know, because I think a huge part of many Americans' education is that we don't look at the Constitution so much as a text as we do as a scripture. Franks is the author of the book, The Cult of the Constitution, and she argues for a new way of reading the Constitution, a new way of understanding our founding story, a new way of using the Constitution to help shape our future, which, by the way, she thinks it should. She also argues that the world we live in today, which is to say a world driven by the internet, it's not one that our interpretation of the Constitution has yet caught up with. And part of moving forward, she thinks, is understanding what she calls the cult around this document, which she knows might seem like an extreme thing to say. The phrase that I had used for some time when I had been working on this book for several years was fundamentalism, because that seemed easy in the sense that that was the kind of character or the nature of the attachment to the Constitution that reminded me so much of my own religious upbringing, but also of the way that many Americans at least understand, or I should say, unfortunately, sort of characterize any religion other than Christianity, right? It's very easy in American society to talk about um, Islamic fundamentalism or any other kind of fundamentalism other than, let's say, Christian fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And so that term seemed right because it really captured the irrational nature of it, the the frightening thing about the fundamentalist worldview being that, you know, it's not just a worldview you think you want to adopt for yourself, but for everyone. And if everyone won't come along with it, then possibly violence is justified. The cult part, I really hesitated about because it's such a loaded term. And the reason why I ultimately decided that it was the right term was because I was looking at, you know, a lot of the theoretical work that's done on cults and on this kind of worship, right, of, of documents or of scriptures or whatever the case may be. And the important thing about that word is how it describes the function of many actual cults. That is, 
there's always a class of people who are the true believers, but there's also always sort of the class above them that is exploiting their belief that at the top level of the cult, it's almost certainly the case that whoever's in charge either is not a true believer or is at least easily observable as exploiting the faith of others for their own personal gain. And it's almost always in economic terms and also, unfortunately, in many ways, sexual terms. And the more I thought about that concept and about how there are those tiers of the cult, right, that there's this hierarchy, the people who know and then the people who believe and how it will always work out from an objective point of view, if we can see it, that whoever's at the bottom is being told you deserve to be there and it is an honor to be there. And the rest of us who will be getting rich off of this and exploiting the resources from this, we deserve to be where we are. Don't question it. And that's where I thought, you know, that actually really does describe the grip that I think the Constitution has on a lot of our society. So we're going to get into the First Amendment, Second Amendment, but um, let's just go back for a minute to the 1780s in Philadelphia. You know, a lot of people are going to think, yeah, for sure, you know, the people putting that Constitution together, they were flawed people. No question about it. We're all flawed. Um, And they they were people who lived in their time. But... They put together something that, you know, guided America, that will guide America into the future, something that the Supreme Court is tasked with thinking about all the time and interpreting. What's wrong with that view of, I mean, that's kind of like what you learn in school. It very much is. And when we think about the terms that we use to describe those people, right, the founding fathers, and it's usually capitalized and you know, we're, we're often told, I think, I think there's a couple of different layers to how we're taught um, about the people who created the Constitution. You know, when we're kids, I think it, it is this almost divinity status that we give them. And then later on, maybe if you get into more sophisticated history, they'll be kind of, you know, what I call in the book an asterisk, right? This, oh, yeah, some of them owned slaves and, you know, some of them had their own economic interests sort of at the forefront. But all things considered, these were really um, amazing people. And that's really troubling, right? Because the explanation that we're given is, yes, they're flawed, but, and the the flawed part we spend very little time on and the the other part we spend um, far more time thinking about. And the more that I thought about that, the more I thought, well, it's one version of history to say, because the implication almost always is they were flawed, but the flaws can be minimized because they were men of their time, right? That is, um, a lot of people, had slaves. And a lot of people didn't, in fact, everyone maybe believed that women were inferior. And so we can't hold them to contemporary standards of morality. And, but that's such an interesting tension between those two things, because on the one hand, we're saying these men were revolutionaries and they were throwing off the bonds of all kinds of government, of tradition, of all the old ways of thinking. And yet somehow they were also completely bound by the traditions and and the norms of their historical period. So that's troubling. And there's a very strange tension there. And then there's also just the undeniable fact that their contemporaries, people like Abigail Adams, others were saying, look, actually, slavery is wrong and women are equal. And it wasn't like that only happened, you know, in the ensuing decades or centuries. People knew it then. There was just a question of whether or not you decided to believe that. So... I think that's one of the problems with the way that we teach people about the Constitution is we ignore that. We ignore the fact that people did know. There were lots of people who knew that slavery and gender inequality were wrong. And if we're going to take these men as these exceptional people of their time, then we need to stop making excuses for how limited they were either in their imagination or in their willingness to sacrifice their own self-interest. doesn't mean we can't celebrate what they've done 
or what people after them have done. It just means that we need to be very clear-eyed when we confront what it was that they did compromise on or what it was that they deliberately did to ensure that the status quo didn't change that much. Right. It's interesting, you know, that this question of like, how much should people be judged by the morals of now versus the morals of then? And you have a really interesting quote in your book um, that I'd never seen before. It's a letter. So we're talking about the 1780s here and, and the Constitution. But back in the 1770s, you mentioned Abigail Adams. She wrote to her husband, John Adams, who was a delegate to the first Constitutional Congress. And she says, I wish most sincerely there was not a slave in the province. It always appeared a most iniquitous scheme to me. Fight ourselves for what we are daily robbing and plundering from those who have as good a right to freedom as we have. You know my mind upon this subject. So as you say, like there's somebody at the time, like if we're just going with the contemporaries, there is a contemporary saying, I don't know, this doesn't seem good to me what's happening. Exactly that. And and I want to say there were lots of people at the time who were articulating things like this. But I do focus on Abigail Adams precisely because she had the ear of John Adams and his response is very telling, but also that she saw the connections, right? The connection that should be obvious to all of us, which is in that haste to say, well, they were men of their time. Um, How could it possibly occur to them that slavery should be abolished? Her point is, how could it not? If, If you're entire animating principle is we should not be taxed without representation. We should not be exploiting someone else's labor. People have the right to participate in their own governance. If those are your actual principles, how do you look at an institution like slavery? Or how do you look at the way that coverture was keeping women as second-class citizens and not think about the fact that, wait, this isn't a revolution at all if it's not a revolution for them. It's just a selective changing of the guard, right? So we're going to throw off British rule, but we're going to reimpose it or keep it uh, where it is when it comes to essentially anyone who is not white and not male and not wealthy. And Abigail Adams just really puts it so precisely when she points this out because she can see the absolutely glaring contradiction in the ideology of the revolution and the practice. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Marianne Frank. She's the author of The Cult of the Constitution. We're going to take a brief break right here. And when we come back, I want to talk about how a new way of looking at the Constitution might cause us to rethink both the First and Second Amendments. If you want to grab this whole conversation or you want to share it, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the early 1990s, when he was about 50, Robert Levy went to law school at George Mason University. By the time he went, he was wealthy. He had already built and sold a successful finance business. And at law school, Levy was, as he had long been, quite driven. He became valedictorian, even though he was decades older than most of the other students and he almost immediately got down to business. By the early 2000s, Levy was hunting for a case, a very specific case he was prepared to bankroll. 
We enjoy a presumption of individual liberty. Government bears a very heavy burden to justify any regulations that would compromise our right to bear arms. The District of Columbia had put a number of restrictions on guns that Levy just did not think were right, and he went looking for a way to overturn D.C.'s restrictions. The Second Amendment is pretty short, and this is what it says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And for it to be interpreted so, I shouldn't say interpreted so much as manipulated in fairly recent decades into this idea of an individual right of self-defense is really a fascinating thing because it it was a non-controversial point. I mean, before the 1970s, you would be hard-pressed to find very many instances of anyone saying this is a private right to bear arms. And in fact, when African-Americans tried to say that this was a private right to bear arms, that was exactly what the Supreme Court was shutting down and saying, that can't be what it meant. We couldn't have possibly meant that we'd arm you. Marianne Franks is a law professor at the University of Miami, and she argues that the idea that Levy had that we should embrace what the founders intended, well, that's both impossible because we can't sit them down and ask them about the Second Amendment, and illogical. There are lots of ways in which the writers of the Constitution thought about the world that we don't and that we don't even try to. But Levy did find a case to back. It was called District of Columbia versus Heller because it involved a police officer named Dick Heller who couldn't keep a gun at his home in D.C. Levy poured time and energy into this case, which first overturned D.C.'s gun laws, and then, in a stroke of good luck for him, it hit the Supreme Court. And we are very gratified that Justice Scalia and his four colleagues that joined the 5-4 majority adopted, I'd say, many and perhaps even most of the points that we have put forward in our briefs, our written briefs, and our oral argument. And included among those are the point, the key point, the threshold point, that the Second Amendment does indeed secure an individual right to keep and bear arms, and that that right does not have to be exercised solely within the context of militia service. Levy didn't own a gun, and he predicted he would probably never buy one. But in 2008, Justice Antonin Scalia ruled in his favor in the Heller case, in a very close 5-4 vote. So it's a highly politicized reading of the Second Amendment that we've got today. Highly politicized, highly ahistorical could not be a better way of describing how whatever it was the Founding Fathers meant by the Second Amendment could not be farther from what today's NRA gun lobby far right wants us to believe it is. And it's interesting because that is the accusation so often thrown at the door of liberals and told that, oh, you're finding all kinds of things in the Constitution that don't exist, rights to privacy and abortion and all these things that aren't real. Talk about really making stuff up. I mean, the idea that you take the Second Amendment and have that be the right to carry a gun in public or to go to a demonstration with a, an assault rifle you know, strapped behind your back, that is just, there is no way to justify that historically, which of course is not the end of the story because interpretation isn't just about history, but it's amazing how that gets presented to the public as the original meaning or the, the truth of what the founding fathers actually intended. Marianne Franks is the author of the book, The Cult of the Constitution, in which she argues it's time for a new way of approaching the Constitution, which would have implications for both the right and the left. 
The Constitution, she says, cannot be read as a document that's divine and sacred. It should not be read, as the Bible often is and was in the fundamentalist church of her childhood, as incontrovertible perfection. The people who wrote it had beliefs that we no longer share. So why, she asks, do we spend so much time trying to get into their heads? The answer is complicated, but the fact that we do it is clear, as we saw four years after the Heller case on a December day when a 20-year-old man killed 26 people at an elementary school in Connecticut. Of course, we are no stranger to gun violence in this country, but even for us, right, the you know, the massacre at, at Sandy Hook was should have been this massive disruptive event that should have very belatedly, at least, ushered in some kind of a reckoning over guns. And what happened in the wake of Sandy Hook was almost entirely the opposite. You had so many politicians who were ready to say, oh, let's not use this tragedy to even for a moment doubt that we have the right interpretation of the Second Amendment, which is no regulations whatsoever. We can't let, you know, the mere deaths of children keep us from this. And it was such a bloodthirsty fanatical way of trying to read a document, it really did seem like, you know, America's truest form of fundamentalism at that moment, because it is so intertwined with violence, the particular fundamentalism of the Second Amendment. And so no matter, you know, even when you're watching dead children, even even as the headlines are still happening, to say, don't let them take away your guns, don't let them use this as a reason to even question this orthodoxy, right, that we've got around the Second Amendment, that that was the most important thing to at least a certain segment of American society. The most important lesson from Sandy Hook was don't take away our sacred right to the guns. And that was literally what many politicians said was your dead kids are not as important as my gun rights. And that is as fanatical a statement as one could imagine. And and you think that's because there's a kind of sanctity to the Constitution that that is not so dissimilar from the sanctity people put onto the Bible, right? That these are sacred texts and no matter what happens, you have to adhere in the in the world, you have to adhere to the text. Exactly this. And that in fact, that's a test of your faith is when things are difficult and everything looks like it might mean that we should take a step back. That's exactly when you need to remain committed. But, you know, one of the many discussions I had around this particular response um, was trying to imagine what it would be like if someone were trying to profess that the Quran justifies the killing of innocents or the killing of children. And you just have to, it's absolutely right and just that, that those kinds of killings be seen as the necessary cost of, of honoring the Quran, how we would, how many, many Christians would respond to that. But when it is dressed up in the religion of the Constitution, somehow it bypasses those radars. And you have people sincerely saying not only is it possible, but it is necessary for us to understand that children have to be sacrificed for this greater principle. Um, You write about the Bundy family, which has squared off in several instances with the government. Um, One um, was over ranching rights. And uh, Cliven Bundy uh, said at one point that he kept the Constitution always in his pocket. And he said in an interview with the New York Times, this is a really interesting quote. This is what he said. Don't we believe that Jesus Christ is basically the author of the Bible? Well, if the Constitution is inspired, who is the author? Wouldn't that author be Jesus Christ again? Do you want to comment on that quote? This is a kind of idea or a kind of concept that uh, the writer Chris Zenda has called theoconstitutionalism, and it's really prevalent among 
a certain sect of Mormonism. And it and it's just fascinating, right? Because it really, it's quite literal in saying the Constitution, at least in some, possibly direct, but at least in some indirect way, was inspired by God. So the author is Jesus and questioning the word of God is exactly as you might imagine it, it would be received. And there are any number of people who seem to believe this, that not only that they believe so strongly in the literality of the Christian religion, but they transpose that onto the Constitution and believe it to be divinely inspired. And that's a very difficult thing to contend with because, as we know, once the religious and the constitutional fundamentalism become intertwined, it is very difficult to have any kind of rational response. That is an overt sort of uh, commitment to saying, we don't care about reason and we don't care about skepticism. We don't care about other interpretations. There is only blind obedience to my interpretation of what God said. And at that point, you were dealing with some very dangerous people. Um, Can I ask you when you think the Constitution, people start looking at it in a cult-like way? I mean, is that right from the beginning or is that kind of a more recent thing? I think we can see that it's escalated recently. I think you can go back and you can look at many, you you can see the myth-making happening even as the Constitution's being written, right? Even in these men's own minds, right? So you hear the statements by George Washington and others saying, you know, what we've done here is something that is so extraordinary as to be almost divine or even divine. Mm. So right at the beginning, there's plenty of cult-like thinking because it's a powerful propaganda necessity at this point, right? You've the framers did not, in fact, have the mandate that they took, right? They weren't supposed to come up with a new constitution. They didn't have the authority to do that. And then they're going to come out of this meeting, this all-white, all-male, all-wealthy meeting, secret meeting, secret deliberations, and say, in the name of democracy and equality, here's this document that we have written that binds all of you, even those of you who are not considered people under it. So you have to do a lot to make sure that people don't rise up against that, essentially, because you know there, there's a lot more of them than there are of you. So I think the myth-making started very early. But maybe the particular ways of using it for overt justifications of violence, we've seen this you know, with the KKK and both of its um, instantiations. We've seen it every time there's been a push towards equality. There's been this violent backlash, and that violent backlash almost always instrumentalizes the Constitution in this very cult-like way. So I think we've seen it over and over again, kind of cyclically, right? Every time there was danger of there being a crack in the domination of white patriarchy, we've seen it really assert itself. And in the last few decades, it's just seemed so overt because it has really taken on that religious valence in a way that is kind of, I think, unavoidable for us to think about now. And you say uh, that the kind of worship of the Constitution is not just a conservative thing. We should not just think of it as um, so politicized in that way. But, you know, when you look at the First Amendment, um, you write about people who would be considered more liberals, let's say, on the political spectrum, worshiping maybe the First Amendment. Can you first of all talk about what's in the First Amendment and then and how does that work? Right, because there is this very obvious story that can be somewhat seductive about uh, many people, I should say, many good liberals are, are, are happy enough to see this idea of constitutional fundamentalism as applied to the right-wingers, right? That obviously, because it is so overt, because it is really much more a characteristic of the right to invoke God, divinity, this is transcendental, and liberals do that less so. And, and obviously, there's a political divide between those who take the Second Amendment as the most important aspect of the Constitution and those who don't. 
But for those who could be very, very broadly characterized as liberals, the First Amendment sort of plays the role of the Second Amendment because they have extremely similar rhetoric. The people who sort of take the First Amendment out of context and use it as the overall right as opposed to the Second Amendment. But that's what's so much in parallel about the two is that it's this tendency to look at the Constitution in terms of one right that you think is really important and then to assert it over all the others. Marion Glendon called it a super right, right? Not speaking of the First Amendment specifically, but just that term super right is very useful here. And, you know, the First Amendment does a bunch of different things, but, you know, the part that I focus on in my book is the free speech aspect as opposed to Mm -hmm. religion or association or the others. But Congress shall make no law, right? Abridging the freedom of speech becomes there can be no consequence for any kind of speech and that the distinctions between a prohibition on government punishment for speech gets uh, conflated with the idea that you should have your speech promoted and have no obstacle to your speech being promoted to any audience you want. And that idea, again, that that similar sense of, because here's the heart of fundamentalism, it doesn't matter who gets hurt because this principle is so important. Listen to what so many self-styled civil libertarians will say about freedom of speech and how incitement, how racial harassment, how gendered violence, how it all begins as speech and people die and have to leave their homes and are threatened. And your civil libertarians will say, that's just the cost of the First Amendment. And if you actually care about it, if you're not just a fair weather free speech person, you will see that the more people who are hurt by speech, the more we have to be dedicated to the principle. And it is eerily similar to what we see with the Second Amendment. You talk about a case that's achieved kind of a celebrity status, and that is Citizens United. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 2010 and uh, essentially took away a lot of campaign finance restrictions, so uh, restrictions on companies, on other groups. And in that case, there was this kind of coming together of right-wing and left-wing interests. Why? I think to answer that question, you know, it's the other piece of American history that we sometimes forget, which is how much of American history is about the powerful in the economic sense. So there's, you know, the unifying principle between the NRA and the ACLU is usually money, that we're talking about the fact that people will go very far to justify economic exploitation. And the same kinds of ideologies that you will see discarded by some people who consider themselves to be principled on these issues will will get activated in another sense because the affinities are more towards the powerful selections of society. So why is the NRA and the ACLU on the same side in Citizens United? Because there is, you know, this abiding belief that those corporate powers, that the, the ability of people to come together and to maximize their profits while being insulated from any negative externalities, that is, you know, in some ways you could cynically say that's really America's first religion, right? The ability to exploit other people for profit. But does that seem surprising? It does only in the sense that we tend to dress up that corporate greed, that that idea in other disguises. We tell ourselves that, you know, a corporation is just a bunch of people. And if we believe in rights for the individual, then a whole bunch of people should get a whole bunch of rights. But We should know that that's not true, but I think that was a real test for a lot of these, again, self-styled, self-described people who defend our civil liberties to line up and say, we think that it is just and right for corporations to be treated as though they have the same free speech rights as individuals. You write about the internet. I mean, so much of what happens now and the story now is shaped by the internet, by social media. And you write about the internet as kind of taking on this um, 
the First Amendment as as something that's just so core and important, and it's shaped the way the internet has unfolded. Um, can you talk about a little bit about why that seems to be happening with the importance of the First Amendment to the folks who created the internet? Yes, I mean you see it even in the the kind of founding documents of the internet. If you look at uh, 1996, John Perry Barlow, who co-founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is was at the time and remains an extraordinarily powerful lobbying force and and force um, explaining the internet to the rest of society and defending certain principles. You know, you look at his Declaration of Independence in cyberspace. You look at that title. You look at the tone of what he's trying to do self-consciously emulating the Founding Fathers and the Declaration of Independence, and in that same quasi-revolutionary sense, right? You've got Barlow, a white, fairly wealthy man, saying, hey, we're throwing off the chains of oppression, and this place, cyberspace, is going to be this great paradise where there should be no regulation because we don't need it. Regulation means all those terrible things associated with inequalities, et cetera. And you look at beyond the grand language and you think, well, Why would we think of the internet that way? Why would we ignore the fact that the internet itself was created by the military? And why would we ignore the role of corporations in the way that the internet then becomes the kind of all-encompassing force it's become today? Why would we indulge this fantasy that there's something utopian or outside the market or outside the status quo or outside of power in the creation of the internet? Um, well, we would do it in part for propaganda reasons. We would have, you know, someone telling us that we all deserve to be free now, as if we were all equally free or unfree outside of the internet. I mean, if we had actually cared about the internet as a paradise or a utopia, we'd probably want to contend more seriously with the offline inequalities that were certainly going to replicate themselves if we didn't do something to stop them. But instead, we get principles, we get abstractions, we get John Perry Barlow and others, I don't want to say it was just him, but saying the internet is just pure speech. That's all it is. Everything that's Mm -hmm. ever going to happen is communication and speech. And therefore, you shouldn't think of the internet as a corporate adventure or a military adventure. It's a constitutional adventure. It is deep within our psyche. It is the expression of our free speech. And by doing that, you really did imbue the entire, you know, cyberspace sort of project with this constitutional feeling. And I think that's where most of this began. And does that shape how we experience the Internet now? Does it create problems with our with the experience of it today? It definitely does, because it is it's that kind of religiosity, again, about free speech, which completely ignores the fact that the First Amendment, if that's what we're really trying to lay claim to, is not, in fact, a blank check for all speech. It never has been. There's never been a point in American history where the principle was all speech is protected all the time. You can never have any consequences or restrictions for it. That's never been true. That's one. But the other is this idea that the internet is just about speech because it's not. Uh, There's so many things, as people all know now, that you do online that when you do the offline cognates of them, we don't call that speech. We don't call buying something at a store speech. So why is Amazon speech? You think about all the things, right? Dating apps, the the workplace, conferencing, all of this kind of stuff, and think you think all of this is speech, and so we haven't really had a reckoning with well, how much of this is conduct versus speech, and how much of the speech is actually protected, which would be what the First Amendment, even in its most generous interpretation, would be asking us to do. Instead, you short circuit people's brains and say everything I do online is basically speech, so I don't have to think about any of those nuances, I can just get really upset anytime someone tries to suggest that I should be somehow 
um, something other than completely unfettered in my ability to express myself. Okay, we're going to take our last break here. We're going to come back for a final few minutes with Marianne Frank. She's a professor of law at the University of Miami. She's worked on legislation that states around the country have adopted for combating online abuse. And she's president of the Civil Cyber Rights Initiative and author of the book, The Cult of the Constitution. You can find out more about her work and the cases that we've talked about on our website, innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Near the end of 2020, after the country had spent about eight months trying to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, there was a hearing in Congress. Some people watched, others were preoccupied. During the hearing, Amy Coney Barrett, who was about to be confirmed to the Supreme Court, was asked a question. Define the term originalism. I interpret the Constitution as a law that I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. Okay. So that meaning doesn't change over time, and it's not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. That question of how to interpret the document that's shaping America's future is a loaded one, and the idea of hewing to the original meaning of the text seems to have been gaining steam. If you look at the last few decades of, for instance, First Amendment, uh, First Amendment and Second Amendment law, right, they both to some extent have been taken over by very rightward leaning political interests. We've seen both of these amendments be used in ways that really benefit a certain political class. Marianne Franks is the author of The Cult of the Constitution. She's a law professor at the University of Miami. And it's obvious enough when it comes to the Second Amendment, this incredibly indulgent interpretation of what it means to to be able to bear arms. But in the First Amendment context, we've seen it go from, you know, what a lot of, I think, you know, classic civil libertarians would have said, look, the First Amendment's there to protect the workers and it's there to protect the vulnerable and it's to protect civil rights protesters. And it's gone to become protect big tobacco and protect the porn industry and protect corporations. She argues this isn't so much ideological as it is power-based. Power, she says, is just reasserting itself as it is tended to do in the U.S. Franks grew up in a fundamentalist church in Arkansas, and she believes that lots of the tendencies she saw as a child to venerate a text, to not question it, even if it seemed to have messages that were questionable, well, a lot of those tendencies have been adopted in our relationship to the Constitution the worship, the literalism, the blind faith. The originalism debate is one that is so interesting because the people who are loudest about saying, we need to interpret the Constitution as it was written, we need to not sort of impose retroactively our values, those are the very same people who argued, and this is, I mean, this is Justice Scalia himself who considers himself to be a textualist and, you know, adhering to the the public meaning of the Constitution's words when they were written, who gave us a decision that says, yeah, the Second Amendment means this thing that no one thought that it meant until you actually got to the modern times. 
So the problem with originalism is that it's almost always a complete fraud. That is to say, anyone who tries to say we are trying to honor the original meaning is just like the fundamentalist who's saying, I know what the Bible says. I know what God was getting at. And all of you were just wrong. Um, and it's used so selectively, right? Because the only actual logical principle that describes what an originalist wants is whatever the originalist wants. And it's much more honest, of course, to be able to say, look, none of us have access in any real sense to the original the original meaning. If that even makes sense, right? Anyone who's ever been a literary scholar knows that that doesn't even make sense as a principle. You've got multiple authors, a document that was a lot of which um, the discussion and the debate is lost to history. The idea that you could pull out one particular meeting, and that is the meeting that cannot be interpreted any differently, that's a, just a very unsophisticated way of looking at any document. So originalism is used as this way to try to get at people's emotions and try to tell them, oh no, we're, we've got the real truth here. We've got this transcendental access to the way things really should be, as opposed to doing the hard work of, look, here's a plausible interpretation. Here's another plausible interpretation. This one is going to mean lots of people are going to die. This one's going to mean lots of people get exploited. Let's talk about what interpretation actually fits. That's really hard work. And it's much less sexy than saying this is just what the Second Amendment means. But that's the work that we, I think, are called upon if we're going to take the document seriously. It also seems hard when you bring technology into it, like to know how Thomas Jefferson would regulate Twitter or, um, you know, uh, communication satellites. I mean, first you'd have to describe to him what those things are. <laughs> yes. And, the, and that, that is another you know, very strange, selective idea that that so-called originalists would have. I mean, we know, of course, that there are just some things that could not have been anticipated. And it's absolutely true that that, of course, a good document, just like good literature, is somewhat transcendent in that there are principles and ideas that we can interpret in lots of ways. But but the internet is a hugely disruptive, radical thing. It's, it's not like just a modification. It's not just the idea that suddenly there were trains and then there were automobiles. It is a lot harder, right, of a shift. But there again, everything changes, right? History changes, nothing stays still. And so the real question really only ever is, don't be intellectually dishonest about that. Let's let's talk about the fact that words always have limitations and interpretations always are suspect. And we just have to commit ourselves to doing the best work we can within those parameters. And the real thing we should be guarding against isn't betrayal of original text because that's meaningless. The real thing we need to guard against is our own self-interest. So let's look at the future here. One of the things you really talk about is this idea of the cult of the Constitution as applied to the Internet. We have seen, I feel like in the last few months, um, maybe a change. I mean, I was talking about Twitter. Twitter has said at various times to former President Trump, no, this is not, you know, we're not going to allow you to be on Twitter. We're not going to allow you to post this. Um, are things changing or is nothing really changing? I think it's too soon to tell. Uh, when okay. we look at what Twitter has done, we can read it as, and a lot of people for many reasons will read it as, oh, look, Twitter's doing a whole bunch of things right now. And yes, that's true. But then we're talking about four years where Twitter stood down and let Donald Trump turn their platform into a propaganda platform and created the conditions under which people got harassed and people got attacked. And where, of course, as we saw in January, in early January, where the very notion of democracy was rejected and a violent insurrection, we saw all of this happen. And Twitter did nothing until the very last few days. So what should we take of that? We can, we can take that as a very belated breaking point to say, look, this is so obvious now, we can't avoid it. 
But what's troubling is that the discourse is becoming so much focused on that point. So that think pieces written just in the wake of Twitter saying, hey, he's, he's kicked off Twitter. So many think pieces were already saying, oh, that's a, we understand why you'd want to take him off of Twitter, but are we sure that this isn't just a slippery slope and who's going to be next and next it's going to be Black Lives Matter? And that's really troubling that that's where we focus, that we're asking the question of, oh, you took a really modest step. Let's criticize that versus let's criticize the four years in which you let this happen. And you contributed to the information environment we've got now where a huge number of Americans want to kill other Americans because they don't vote the way that they do. They have to take responsibility for that. And that change is going to have to be structural and deep. And unfortunately, now the waters are all muddied by the very people who have been responsible for these violent tendencies now complaining that this is a violation of their free speech. Twitter is actually responsible for that misunderstanding too, because what did all these social media companies say for years before they changed their minds? Oh, we are operating on principles of the First Amendment, even though we're private organizations and don't have any governmental obligations. They fostered this view that everything you do online is not just important, but constitutionally important. And now that people are starting to be upset about that or taking it seriously and saying, well, then how are you allowed to restrict me? They're all having to back into a corner and say, oh, we didn't really mean it literally. We meant we were taking this kind of idea of the Constitution. Well, you shouldn't take the idea of the Constitution if you don't want to, to get into this mess, right? It should have always been clear that the Internet is not just some sort of constitutional playground, right? It's, it's not that everything you do here is constitutionally significant. And they're learning that lesson now, but it's really unclear where that lesson is going to take any of us. And then let me ask you about the Second Amendment, because we talked a lot about the First Amendment. If you if somebody was asking your advice, you know, the president was saying, so then how do I proceed forward with the Second Amendment, given that a lot of people think it, it's absolute, you can own any kinds of guns you want, as many as you want. Um, but there's obviously been a lot of pushback against it. Uh, how what's the way to move forward and create a, a sort of future America that, in your view, deals with the Second Amendment more reasonably? Well, we're now, for better or for worse, now living in the world that Heller has given us. And Heller tells us that, yes, the Second Amendment is an individual right. And unless and until the Supreme Court tells us differently, that's something we have to contend with. We can't ignore that even if it makes no sense, which it doesn't, and even if it's completely ahistorical, which it is. But that's where they've left us. So we're looking now at a world where there is this interpretation of the Second Amendment as an individual right to bear arms. Okay. Okay. For self-defense. Now, Justice Scalia, in that opinion, says you have this individual right when it comes to protection for yourself in your own home. And the reason why I emphasize this is because that's actually pretty narrow. It doesn't say anything about whether or not you're allowed to carry guns outside of your house. It says nothing about whether or not you should be allowed to carry them concealed. It says nothing about whether or not you can show up at a grocery store and have one strapped to your back. So I think what has to happen is local and state governments need to be a lot more adventurous to say, look, just because there's this crazy historical interpretation of the, of the Second Amendment out there, that is no bar to us passing all kinds of regulations about when and where you can use those guns. Um, outside of the home, you've got plenty of places that you can legislate. You can say not at courthouses. You can say not at schools. You can say not in bars. You can say all kinds of things and should. And you can say, look, if you care about the Second Amendment and the First Amendment, you can't let one eat the other. So if you allow people to show up at a protest with guns, you are basically telling all the people without the guns, you're going to be silenced because no one speaks freely when there's a gun in their face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So be sophisticated about that and create laws that actually would try to, you know, enhance as the constitution tells us to do domestic tranquility. 
So I think there's just plenty of space and plenty of imagination for us to work around the unfortunately terrible decision that we got from the Supreme Court in interpreting the Second Amendment. Do you feel like your own reading of the Constitution, I mean, we kind of started with like your reading of the Bible changed over time. Do you feel like your reading of the Constitution has made you uh, care less about it, believe less in it? I think in many ways, my evaluations of the Constitution have made me care more about it, um, but more about its power in both the positive and the negative sense. It is clearly powerful as an idea, as an animating principle, as a force. And when people invoke it, they are sure that they are doing something important. They are sure that they are doing something noble. That is enough reason to take it seriously by itself. But even if I didn't think that that was enough of a reason, I actually do think that much in the way that the New Testament complements and sort of rewrites the Old Testament, the 14th Amendment and the Reconstruction Amendments do something so powerful and so valuable. There is objectively a good lesson there. The idea of reciprocity, the idea that the only rights that matter are the ones that you would fight as hard for, for people you don't like and people who are not of your tribe. That's an important message. And the fact that the Constitution offers that to us, tells us that that could be the way we could live our lives, is not something that I think I'd ever want to be contemptuous of. That's an extraordinary thing. We really do have it in the Constitution to say all of these things that could be used to be divisive, that could be used to simply advance someone's self-interest, could also be read in a way that is, how do I feel about being part of a community that honors the Constitution? How do I feel about being someone who wants to take all the principles and rights and values of the Constitution and ensure that the most vulnerable people get them as much as I get them? That everyone out there who is suffering and who is being exploited has some reason to hope that the Constitution means, could mean, that they can have a better life. That's, that is a beautiful and powerful thing that I think we can still believe in. Marianne Franks is professor of law at the University of Miami. She's the author of The Cult of the Constitution, Our Deadly Devotion to Guns and Free Speech. Marianne, thank you very much. Thank you. And we're going to have more writing from Marianne Franks on our website, innovationhub.org. If you have thoughts on what we've talked about, you can find us on Facebook. We are also on Twitter at iHubRadio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Hannah Kiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.